Please join with me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. The scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but in humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Jesus Christ. Though he was in the form of a God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth may bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but even more now when I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. Among these people, you will shine like stars in the world because you hold on to the word of life. This will be, allow me to say on the day of Christ that I have not run or for nothing or worked for nothing. Even if I am poured out like a drink offering upon the altar of service for your faith, I am glad. I am glad with all of you. You should be glad with this in the same way. Be glad with me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when I was growing up in church, um, I did children's choir and lots of children's uh, plays and programs. And there was one that had this little song, um, do everything without complaining, do everything without complaint. We didn't love it during the particular show that it was in. Uh, we really, really didn't love it in subsequent years when every time our group got a little grumpy, a little grouchy, our choir director would make us sing it, right? Yeah. It was not our favorite thing it, to sing that song, do everything without complaining. Originally, uh, Peter was going to preach this week, and I was going to preach last week, and so it was kind of a funny twist of fate when we switched, and I ended up with letting go of being right. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a better person than I am, but I like to be right. <laughs> I do. I really, yeah, okay, my husband's giving me way too, <laughs> too big a nod. <laughs> I like to be right. But all of this Lent, we're talking about the things that we need to let go of in order to take up our cross. Those things that we've picked up and that we carry along that are not really a part of God. And so how do, as we live out our discipleship calling, how do we let go of what we don't need in order that we might more exemplify Christ in the world? 
So I came across a funny story as I was prepping this week. Um, do you know that there are two officials in Washington, D.C. that cannot ride in an elevator alone together without first filing federal meeting notification paperwork? <laughs> okay, yeah, it sounds really awful. There are, there are two people, they can't ride in an elevator alone because they, they serve on a, um, a voting ethics um, uh, campaign ethics commission, there's usually six people on this commission. Right now, there are only two. Because as people have rolled off, the vacancies have not been filled. And so in order to keep them from colluding, they can't meet alone without filing notification. And that includes riding in an elevator alone together. It seems a little bit ridiculous. Right? Like, we, we've kind of gone overboard. But it really is kind of symptomatic of just how divided we have gotten as a people. Uh, the graphic that James is going to is, is every year Pew Research asks Americans, do you think that we are more divided than we were in the past? Or do you believe that we have more agreement on values than we did in the past? And I know it's a little bit of an eye test. But what you're seeing is that every year for the last 20 plus years since 1994, that graphic has, that question has diverged. More and more people thought that we disagreed, that we were divided, and fewer people thought we shared values, with one exception. There's one little blip in there. Anybody want to guess when it was? 9-11, well done. Yes, in the wake of 9-11, we were a unified nation, but very quickly thereafter, we went back to this sense of division, the sense that we do not agree and that the problem is getting worse. The reason there are only two people on this commission where there should be six is that compared with pre-1987, it now takes a president three times as long to make an appointment and five times as long for that appointment to actually get confirmed. So there's a huge political backlog because we have become so divided, so entrenched in our positions that we don't know how to talk to one another anymore. There was a great story on NPR. They have this, uh, Rachel Martin has this group of voters in North Carolina that she's been talking to for uh, over a year. She went, started going down before the election. She went down recently. They meet once a week in the back of a local diner called the Skyland Family Restaurant. And they talk about politics, local, national, worldwide, and, and they kind of chew the fat. And so she checks in with them now and then to see how things are, are going. And she sort of asks them this question. Do you think that we're more divided or less? Do you think that there's any chance for unification now? And I found one of these answers really interesting. Dan Reed is the guy that kind of convenes the group. It's his group. And, and he piped up and he said, unification? Well, so long as I have 50% plus one, we're unified. So long as I have 50% plus one, just enough to get what I want, right? Just enough to be right. It'll all be okay. We talk about this in the context of politics, but I know some of you may have experienced it in your relationships, in your, your friendships or your marriage, that sense that if I can just win the argument, it'll all be okay. 
right? But I wonder, what happens to our community? What happens to our relationships? When the need to be right overtakes our ability to compromise. When we are no longer willing to choose to be happy over being right. Because believe me, I've been married for five years and already I know sometimes you choose to be happy instead of choosing to be right. I have two friends who are um, very comfortable in their marriage and so they will occasionally bicker in front of us um, and every now and then you'll, you'll hear one of them go what he is saying to himself under his breath is happy wife, happy life. <laughs> Right? He has discovered that sometimes you give up the need to be right in order to be happy. This isn't actually a new phenomenon. Um, Paul is writing to a community that is very much in the midst of this who is right and who will win kind of battle. If you were with us last week, you, you heard Peter talk a little bit about the community at Philippi. Uh, this was a church that Paul knew well that he had founded, they had cared for him while he was in prison, first in Philippi, and then they've sent money to him while he is imprisoned elsewhere. So he's writing to a people that he loves. And in the opening chapters, he really tries to set this stage for what it means to be a disciple in faith, what it means to follow the example of Christ, to kind of, we talked last week about having to step out of our comfort zones and let go of the things that we like in order for the community to grow. As he moves into the second chapter, he begins to address more directly the problem that he's writing about. See, that's the thing about letters, these epistles that are most of the New Testament. They are all written to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. And if you read the letter close enough, you can kind of pull that reason out. And it seems that there is some disagreement about the nature of the gospel in the church at Philippi. They've known Paul, Paul planted their community, but there have been other preachers who've come in who've had some disagreements, and now those disagreements have taken root. But Paul wants to talk less about who is right and more about how they ought to be dealing with one another in the midst of their disagreement. In fact, at one point, he'll go so far to say is, it really doesn't matter who's right so long as Christ is glorified. But as he gets to this kind of second chapter, he wants to talk about how you ought to be dealing with each other in these moments when you disagree. And like a good Southern preacher, he quotes a hymn. Um, he, he pulls a song, a, a piece of liturgy that they would have known well, this little Scholars will call it by a fancy name. They call it the kenosis hymn. Kenosis simply means emptied out. It comes from the first words. But between verses 6 and 11, there's this little piece of liturgy that the church would have used. And so he pulls it and he says, Adopt the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. Paul sets out this example that if we are followers of Christ, we ought to emulate the way that he lived his life. And that means that when we are in the midst of disagreement, we ought to take on the mind of Christ. 
Now, what he doesn't mean is that we ought to all think alike and be unified all the time. I think Paul was a very realistic man. He understood that if you put enough people in this room and ask them what color that carpet is, you will get six different answers, right? Yes, he knows church folk. It's fine. He's not talking about being unified in a kind of group think. What he wants to say is that even when we disagree, we have an example for how we ought to behave. And he says, let this mind be in you. Oftentimes we translated this mind. What does he mean by this, right? My English teachers in the room are looking for an antecedent. We have to jump back up to verses one through five. Let this mind be in you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. When Christ says, be of this mind, he doesn't mean you ought to all agree. What he says is, can you come to a disagreement from a position of humility? Can you honor that your brother or sister might have good reasons for thinking the way that they do, that they may have worked through this very carefully? Can you even risk the fact that you might be wrong? Because only when we enter into a conversation acknowledging the possibility that we're wrong can we really have a kind of dialogue with one another and not a very quiet screaming match. He writes these words, he says, let this mind be in you or in yourself. We often translate that in the singular in English, but Greek is a, a more complicated language. And the word can mean in yourself. It can also mean among yourselves. So Paul is writing very much to a community. He wants to say to each and every one of them, are you willing to be as humble as Christ was? Even in the midst of your disagreements, are you willing to come from the position of servitude and humility? Are you willing to honor what your brother and sister has to say? He pulls a hymn because he knows that is the language of the heart and because it lays out very quickly and concisely this movement that Christ made. That he went from, from being God, God's self, but did not regard that as a sense with which he could bludgeon every disciple's disagreements out, right? But instead took the form of a servant. And for this was glorified. We know that Christ's humility went so far that he would wash his disciples' feet. We know that he was even open to his own rebuke. Do you know the story of the Syrophoenician woman? Syrophoenician women, she's a Gentile, is what you should get from her title, not a Jew. She came to Jesus one day and she said, my daughter is possessed by a demon, will you heal her? And Jesus said, well, I didn't, I didn't come to you. I came to the children of Israel. But she rebukes him. She says, won't even the dogs eat the children's crumbs from under the table? And Jesus takes it, and he says, woman, go, your daughter is healed because of your faith. 
Even Jesus was willing to admit that moment when someone, when he might have been wrong. Y'all are probably holier people than I. I really like to be right all the time. I have been known to argue a point just for the sake of argument. I, came, I have a master's degree in theology, which is really just a fancy way of saying we sat around and had arguments for fun. Okay, yeah, you can laugh at that, that's good, yes. So I get this, I get this unification so long as it's 50% plus one. I get the comfort that comes from thinking that I always know what's best. I promise you the world is a way more ordered place in my head than it is in reality. I understand how sometimes we want our own way, not even out of a sense of selfishness, but because we really believe it is what's best. But we live in community. We are built for community. And that means that we have to learn how to have those holy and healthy disagreements with one another. And the first step for that is humility. As I was studying this week, I, I came across this French philosopher. He started out as a big proponent of the French Revolution and then as it became more violent and more oppressive, really turned against it and said, you know, we've transgressed our own ideals. He, he had this saying, the aim of an argument or discussion should not be victory, but progress. I wonder what it would take. There are probably a dozen places in your own mind you could name where we are divided as a nation, as a church body, as even within your own families, what would it mean in those places to say the goals of our conversations are not that one or the other of us would have victory, but that we would make progress? Because the problem with victory is that every time there's a winner, there's a loser. And that will very slowly pick apart the very fabric of any relationship. We are meant for more than that. Scripture says that we have been knit together into one body. And so sometimes the body has to learn to disagree. But we have been given a great model in the humility of our Lord and Savior that might lead us not into death, but into life. Amen.